many of the situations that I've experienced, it's a failure of leadership. It's managers trying to manage to either a number or to a quota or to some sort of deadline that is regardless of current economic times, of buyer situation, of really any other factor besides this is a number, we are going to hit this come hell or high water, not taking anything else into account, right? Where I think leaders can have an impact on that is when you take an approach of, hey, instead of just, I'm giving you this number, I'm giving you a couple of tools, good luck, hope you hit that number. If not, we're going to ratchet up the pressure as days in the month get less. A real leader can help someone be educated, can help their sales team actually learn how to provide value to an organization. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. Now, that was Mark Evans. Mark is the author of a book titled Raise Your Standards, The Definitive Guide to Building Seven-Figure Sales. In our conversation today, Mark and I talk about why he believes, and I use air quotes when I say this, the old way of selling died when sellers thought they could manipulate and pressure prospects into buying. And we dive into why Mark believes that the day of the pushy, persuasive seller is over and what needs to be done to move beyond that day. We talk about what it means to raise your standards as a seller. seller. In particular, we explore how to raise your mindset standard, one element of which is ensuring that you focus on results, not methods. And Mark shares why he believes the methods-driven activity is the illusion of real productivity instead of getting results. Mark also shares his four-part sales process to elevate all your sales standards. So again, into all of this and much, much more, But before we get to Mark, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could also give us your feedback about how we're doing by leaving us a review. We'd really appreciate that. So thank you. All right, let's jump into it. Mark, welcome to the show. Andy, thanks so much for having me on. Oh, my pleasure. So um, we've not met before, so uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. I'd be happy to. Well, I grew up in Wisconsin in an Yay, entrepreneur. Badgers. Go Badgers, yes. I uh, grew up in Wisconsin into an entrepreneurial family. My parents owned a small business, so I got a taste of business and, what, and what sales. The business, uh, actually, it's funny. So my dad is a sixth generation printer. So it was a printing operation. So business cards, um, mailings, things like that. They printed um, all those sorts of things. And so I should have been the seventh generation printer, but did not follow in a long lineage of printing generation. Still, (laughs) I know. Plus plus the internet happened. And the internet happened, yeah. But just another in the long list of things I've disappointed my family on. Oh, yeah. We all have those things. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So I got exposure to business and sales at a really young age and, uh, you know, then started my career like many do in a corporate career. Worked my way through those. Had some great experiences. Had some really uh, tough and good learning lessons through that. And then started a sales consulting and training organization a few years ago, wrote a book along the way, got married, had two, uh, have two beautiful kids, two beautiful daughters, uh, and man, life's good. I live now in Naples, Florida, uh, where I avoid anything that is remotely close to snow or snowstorms. <laughs> huh, except all the Canadians that go down there. So, um, all right, so there's a lot to unpack there. Is why, I mean, on one hand, you sort of think, well, the last thing the world needs is another sales training business. So what was inspiring you to start 
a sales training company. Yeah, I, I would totally agree with you. The last thing the world needs is another sales training organization. But what I really focused on is more on how you can build a sales entity from kind of the ground up, uh, especially as it relates to how do we recruit, how do we find the right kind of sales individual, and then those critical elements of all right, how do we um, how do we conduct like an interview process that actually is going to get the individual that we want? Then how are we going to onboard and train them? And so that's where I really try to specialize. There's a ton of different sales um, methodologies out there that are great. My real focus is, all right, how do we take someone that is just a suspect that may or may not be a candidate for your company and turn them into um, a quota attainment um, member of your of your group? Well, let's, let's talk about that because... So how do you, because this is yeah, the ever-present challenge for any, any manager, any hiring manager, is find, identifying candidates, certainly. Among the candidates that identify, identifying those who have what they think it takes to succeed yeah. at their company. And third, having a sort of yeah, consistent process that gives them the data they need to make a decision. Yeah. Well, that's how you do that. Well, let's start first with how you're going to identify someone. So I think what uh, one of the misses that I see a lot of organizations not have is we spend a lot of time developing an ideal customer profile, right? Or a sure. buyer or type, ideal, right? Ideal candidate profile. Yeah, I'm going to skip this. Yeah, you right. need to develop. And so very few companies actually have an ideal candidate profile. They look at, well, they're friends of so-and-so, or there's a loose connection here. They kind of have done this in the past. Mm-hmm. But really, but like what, but right with each salesperson at each organization, there's a different, there's got to be a different, like, um, I don't know, thumbprint on them, right? Or there's a li- different elements that you're looking for with it. So I think the first step, you got to get very clear with who your ideal candidate profile is going to look like. So start there and list it out. Take it just as serious as your marketing department takes your ideal customer profile. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's a problem. I know for a lot of sales organizations, they just sort of, as you said, they sort of skip that step. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, it's just like, it's just like if you're trying to sell without really knowing who you're supposed to sell it. If you don't have a target market, you're just going to get anybody that shows up. Exactly, right? It sounds really simple. Like, oh, well, you know, we're just going to start hiring some people. But no, get really intentional with who you're going to identify. And then second, one of the really easy things that I think a lot of organizations could change with right away is at a lot of companies right now, there's kind of this random smattering of people interviewing candidates, right? Like, oh, hey, uh, mm-hmm. Andy, you're going to come in, you're going to interview. Like, all right, our sales manager, they're busy for the next 20 minutes. Um, someone went to school, like uh, to UW-Madison, who's uh, in fulfillment right now. So how about that you come and talk to them for a little mm-hmm. bit about their experience? And it's just a very uncurated, very unintentional type of process. So right. as, as I've seen with companies, when you put, start with starting an interview team, right? And so you have to have different elements and have individuals that are going to be dedicated on that interview mm-hmm. team. And second, have that interview team create their own interview scorecard. We have OKRs, we have KPIs, we have dashboards, mm-hmm. we have everything else. But what happens? How is your team actually growing? rating individuals as they come through the interview process. So those are two things that you can start with right away. Identify a team that's going to conduct all of the sales interviews, not just random people, and then have a scorecard that you're going to actually base questions off of so that you can correspond those answers to your scorecard. So it's not like, well, I had a good gut feeling about Andy. He seems great. Let's start him. Uh, And potentially, what's that? I look good in a suit. (laughs) 
He was I mean, great at selling himself. Shocking. Yeah, they're in sales. Um, well, yeah. No, I, I, I say that. I look good in a suit, not only because I do, but also because yeah, I had a, a client serve, use that as a criteria for making an offer to somebody. Yes, I joined, he had hired me, and I, he was having sales issues. And I, we're sort of, yeah, done some interviews of all the team members, sales team members, and you know, I got to this person. I said, "So, you know, tell me why? Why did you make the decision to hire this guy?" Because <laughs> the guy was really problematic. I didn't say that. I said, "Why did you make the decision?" He says, "Well, I just thought he, you know he looked really good when his suit when he came in. I thought he'd represent us well." It's like, mm-hmm. Exactly. That's a problem. <laughs> that's a major problem. But that's not too far that's off of. Yeah, yeah, that's not too far off from what we're doing. And we're doing our version of they look good in a suit with all these other elements. Like, oh, they sounded really good. They were really attentive. Like, well, none of that can matter in your sales uh, motion, in your sales operation, right? Unless you get crystal clear with what exactly this scorecard is, what's the job that needs to be done, who's going to be the best fit for it. You're going to be looking at those little things like, ah, they had a really good handshake. Yes, that's important. But that should not be your basis for are we going to hire this person or not. Yeah, unless you're scoring on the handshake. So... (laughs) Yeah, a question then is because I I think using a scorecard is absolutely essential. And I like the idea of that, and I agree, on the sort of the team that does, especially in smaller enterprises where it's not like you have a thousand people to choose from to to interview. But the part that I think a lot of companies miss that I think is is essential is if you have a team and they're scoring, they basically need to ask the same questions. And so, because otherwise, how are you, the scoring becomes arbitrary. Yeah. Right. But if you have, let's say five people on a team, one person, usually this hiring manager, my belief is the hiring manager does the deep dive, right? Goes through the CV, looks at the experiences, tries to get a sense of the person. But the other people are asking somewhat the same questions, if not exactly the same questions in the same order. Cause then when they get together to debrief and they say, well, how did they do on this question? You have a common field of reference to say, oh, well, this is what this person said. And you then the scores start making sense. Mm-hmm. And this is, I think, is a problem that companies run into is they don't do that because then, then the scores just become random by person. And yeah, I think there are questions, specific questions that don't get asked that you can ask about, you know, surfacing character and values and you know, things that aren't sales specific. Because I think the hiring manager sort of goes into those. You're, I think the rest of the team's really looking for the person. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think the rest of the team, they have to be trained. They have to be educated on, all right, what are these elements that we're going to look at that we've had success with our ideal candidate profile? Going back to that. All right, so what are the questions that we can form around it? And like most assessments, right, whether you take the Colby or the Clifton Strengths Finder or the Myers Briggs, mm-hmm. they don't just ask one question and then like move on. No, they ask it in a variety of different ways. So there's ways to do that during your interview process in which you're asking a similar question, trying to get to a, a root issue, but just asking it in two or three different ways. Yeah, no, I agree. I think that's just, but the, the key point for me is, is you have to have a common reference, right? Yeah. People are relating. And then the other thing that with scorecards, which is, and I know some companies use them, very few though, is that the beauty of scorecards is then you get a chance to say, look, you know, we hired these people, this last cohort we hired back, you know, six months ago. Uh, you know, three are doing okay, three aren't so great, or maybe are middle, middling, a moderate, and three aren't doing so great. You go back and look on the scorecards. 
So how do these people answer on these questions? So we can start building the database to say, ah, we know that people's certain scores on certain type answers or certain aggregate scores, because typically if, with my clients, if, if yeah, they're going to set a, a, a sort of baseline score people need to attain in order to, to be considered for hire, because you're trying to take emotion out of it. But you can use this as a database to go say, well, huh, this guy, look, this person looks really good, but you know, we weren't sure about this answer. Let's go look at our database. Oh, you know, people that haven't scored high on that have struggled here. Yeah, you get an informed decision. I think it makes all the sense, and I think organizations that have that level of scorecard then can look back at their past cohorts. That's how you get that exponential growth. That's how you're going to improve the quality of your salespeople by and large over time versus just kind of this uh, scattered gun approach that many organizations find themselves in. Yeah, I mean, I just remember years ago when I was hired my first sales job, it was the boss, the hiring manager, ultimate decision of the hiring manager was, his version of this was, you know, we've always had good success hiring people from this school, not so much from that school. So we just don't recruit people from that school anymore. We only do them this school. That's like, <laughs> seriously, that's, that's, your, that's your data point? That's um, the data point. But for a lot of companies, that's still the data point. Mm-hmm. It's not too far off, unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, interesting. Well, I've gotten a debate with people this before is, is I had one client who very successful entrepreneur and I was, he hired me to, to help him with his third company. So it had two successful companies. He had edit, exited third company, but he was his first criteria. And this was on a screening basis. It didn't matter how many years the person had been in business. It was college GPA. Hmm. And he just, yeah, lived and died on that. What was the rationale behind that? He just thought that it, you know, indicated a willingness to to work hard, you know. And it's like, (laughs) I I was never able to fully dissuade him from that because I was probably somebody similar to many People have succeeded in careers that were indifferent students. Um, yeah. But uh, I, they raised their game when they got out of school. Uh, so I would never have made the grade with him. But, yeah, I couldn't really argue with him because he was very successful. And worked with them in the past, yeah. But, I mean, you also look at, right, that doesn't take into effect, all right, did they work two, three jobs, as many people that I know in college, to try to well, pay I, their way through? Um, well, yep. Doesn't right? Uh, uh, yeah. Well, interesting perspective to say that. I didn't least. have I didn't have that excuse. I was just an indifferent student. Um, but <laughs> but I think this is it's a great a great conversation that doesn't happen enough about we have increasing use of data across all aspects of sales because you know technology enables us to have you know real visibility into what's happening. Uh, we certainly have a sort of an explosion of metrics we can use to track various aspects of the selling process. But I personally have encountered very few companies over the years that have are using the data in the same way in the way they hire. And all they say, oh, yeah, we use assessments. And it's like, man, assessments is not the issue. It's like, what's your process? Do you have a data-driven process for identifying candidates, screening candidates, and then making a decision about who you hire using the data to take the emotion out of the decision. Yes. Which is really what you're trying to do, right? You're trying to take the emotion out of the decision because 
you have five people on a hiring committee. Yeah, there's one person that's really going to like that person. And if they're the, uh, you know, from a hierarchical standpoint or just a status standpoint, they're you know, the sort of a dominant personality. Hey, their favorites get hired. And the stakes are higher than ever. I mean, I don't need to tell you, Andy, about the open job opportunities, right? Just about every client I talk to right now can't hire enough salespeople. They can't even find enough salespeople to even mm-hmm. like put a requisition together. And right. and the downside of making a poor fit hire can be upwards of like $100,000 from one of the last studies that I read. Maybe $115,000 is what jumps out to me. Actually, the number, the range is pretty pretty broad. I mean, I there was one study that came out... Uh, I was going to say it's in the last 10 years that put the number at seven times the base salary. Wow. That was the highest one. Seven times the base salary. Yeah, and just from a, you know, total cost, opportunity cost. um, Yeah, if you've hired somebody and, you know, they stay on board for six months to a year and then wash out, what have you lost? I mean, it's not just the salary. Yeah. You know, it's not just, you know, (laughs) their fully loaded, fully burdened overhead. Um, yeah, you lost the opportunity. What was their quota that they didn't attain as a result? Yeah, and what are the cultural impacts in your sales team as well? Turnover has a cost, um, mm-hmm. both both uh, fiscally, but also like emotionally amongst your team members. Um, and now it's more difficult than ever to try to recruit these individuals. So just going off of your gut feel or how you're feeling that day, right? Even our hunger, our did we get enough sleep last night as the interviewee can impact our hiring decisions and hiring choices. Um, and we're leaving that far up to chance. We're spending all this time, money, effort, and putting so many data points into our sales process and sales funnel, we got to replicate something on the interview process because that's that's not going away. People selling to people is not going away anytime soon. No, no, that's <laughs> I agree. Probably not a majority these days, <laughs> but I agree. Um, yeah, and you you see that all the time. Is you know people certain people think that. Yeah, if not automation, is that you know enough of the process could be automated that it decreases the impact of the people, and I think that that is just a fundamental misunderstanding of what's happening with customers. Yes, yes, I totally agree. Yeah, I mean, people say, "Oh, customers don't want to talk to sellers." It's like, well, a customers have never wanted to talk to sellers, <laughs> <laughs> but they do if they think they can help them. Yes. And that really becomes the bottom line. If, you, if you're going out there and acting just to serve the stereotypical me, me-centered me seller pushing a product without really being mindful of what the problem and the desired outcomes are, then, yeah, the buyer doesn't have time for you. Mm-hmm. And that's been true since the beginning of time, maybe, right? To your point, like that's always been the way. Modern sales time, for sure. Yeah, modern sales time, for sure. 130 years, we'll go. Um, Okay, well, let's talk about your book a little bit. You've published a book called Raise Your Standards, The Definitive Guide to Building Seven-Figure Sales. So is this seven-figure sales as an individual or for an enterprise? Yeah, it can be seven-figure sales as an individual. I have had organizations that have taken the principles and gone to eight figures um, with taking some of those principles together. But when I really wrote it, I wrote it, and as I was typing, as, as since you're an author, maybe you did something similar as well. Um, I really wrote it, uh, and while I was actually like 
you know, tangibly typing it out, was trying to think of, all right, if I, I was to give advice to, there was like three or four people that I was kind of thinking of writing this book. If mm-hmm. I could just give them advice for them to go from where they were struggling in their sales career to having a really successful career, what would I tell them? And that's who I wrote the book for, right? So that's where part of the title comes out and part of the lessons come from as well. Right. So you start sort of a common theme, which, or a theme, let's say, which is increasingly common these days, which actually I was having a conversation interviewing someone for the show last night um, and they were using the same phrase. You say, you know, the old way of selling is dead. So what, what is the old way? And then secondly, why do we think it's dead? Because the evidence will probably say otherwise. Okay. Well, I would define the old way of selling similar to what we were talking about just in our kind of our last topic, right? Of individuals who are trying to manipulate someone into a situation that probably isn't in their best interest. Um, And so it's individuals that aren't giving value, right? It's talking to that salesperson that's not providing you with any sort of value. They're either order taking or they're far far too manipulative. And I really think since the the outbreak of this thing called the internet, right? By as we know, as many have said, they're far more educated than they ever have before. So salespeople's ability to, um, I don't know, I guess kind of uh, color outside the lines or to blur some some of the black and white elements of sales is just you can't tolerate that anymore. And it's got to be a value-driven, value-first conversation and relationship that you're having with today's buyer. I mean, I, it's not, I don't disagree. I agree. But... Um... Yeah, maybe not as optimistic that that the old way is dead. It's not that it shouldn't be dead. It's just I don't think it is. No, there's people still out there that do something similar, right? That have no problem. Most sellers probably do, and I. But it's not. But it's it's not their fault, right? And this is this is I think where the for me the issue is is that. Yeah, we, we identify these these pushy sales behaviors. Uh, you know, these people rely purely on sort of persuasion to try to, you know, as you said, sort of manipulate, if not manipulate, pressure prospects into buyer into buying. But I don't think that's the way. As I like to say on the show, that's not innate human behavior. You know, people don't <laughs> they don't come out of the womb that way, uh, and they're probably not raised that way necessarily it's it's this is what we socialize sellers to do and train them so it's like because i get in these conversations and and i just i think oftentimes and you see this increasingly on linkedin you know people are sort of pointing fingers at bad behavior and start pointing fingers at the individual sellers and sort of you know sales blaming them is a, a new term coming up and it's like uh okay is it really the seller's fault or is this just the way that they've been trained and the way the expectations are laid on them yeah i think in many of it and i certainly can't speak for all of them but i think in many of it many of the situations that i've experienced or i've I've just seen right um it's a failure of leadership i think that it's a failure of its managers trying to manage to either a number or to a quota or to some sort of deadline that is 
regardless of current economic times, of buyer situation, of really any other factor besides this is a number, we are going to hit this come hell or high water, not taking anything else into account, right? Where I think leaders can stand in the way is, uh, or I'm sorry, where leaders can have an impact on that is when you take an approach of, hey, instead of just, I'm giving you this number, I'm giving you a couple of tools, good luck, hope you hit that number. If not, we're going to ratchet up the pressure as uh, days in the month get less. Um, A real leader can help someone be educated, can help their sales team actually uh, learn how to provide value to to an organization so that they don't have to be in those manipulative or persuasive, solely persuasive um, type of sales situations. Yeah. So it sort of comes, I think, comes down to a point. It definitely starts at the top. And as uh, (laughs) the old I think mafia expression was or something as you know, fish rock from the head down <laughs> is how do you get someone at the top to say, look, you know, we sort of, as somebody using the analogy to me yesterday, I was talking about this particular topic. They were saying, well, it's like we're trying to fix the airplane in flight or we're trying to fix the bus while the wheels are rolling and, you know, no one wants to stop. Right. So, we don't really ever get it sort of a reset moment per se where things sort of stop. So how do you convince a leader that it's in their best interest to change in this regard as to, because they have to be the instigators of the change. Yeah. They have to want to change, right? We can't just say, Hey, you should change. Here's why Uh, that's not going to go through it. I think what they've got to be able to do and they've got to be able to see is that, all right, is this sustainable long term, right? Is this the culture that I want to, I want to leave? And I guess I've been really fortunate in the past to have some not so good leaders that just manage to that number, right? Those manager Mm -hmm. types that that's Mm -hmm. where they focused on. Um, And then I was very fortunate to work for and had the privilege of working for some real leaders, right? That really invested and were concerned more about their sales culture. I mean, I, the only way I can kind of think of it is I, I, uh, I know what it's like to be on one side of that table and it sucks. It's like the worst sales experience. It is soul sure. crushing beyond soul crushing, right? The yeah. other yeah. side is amazing, right? It's, it's euphoria going into work and being in a, uh, being in and on a team in which the sales culture is in alignment with my own personal values, right? My own personal values to your point before is not to persuade or manipulate or pressure anybody into doing anything. That's not, that's just not my general modus operandi. And I don't think it is for many people. And so aligning that with what your general sales culture is. Yeah. I mean, sure. Is the, is the plane in the air and do you still have to kind of like make some tweaks to it while it's going or is the car on the track and you got to change the tires? Yeah, but it's worth it, right? Like what's the other option, right? Is that we just run this into the ground and that you just continue this cycle of arduous, you know, plane crash after plane crash or car accident after car accident. Um, so it's worth it, right? Now, that may not answer the question entirely for those that are, are focused to uh, meet, quote, and hit those numbers, but there's got to be a change and a move over to that culture-driven um, sales organization. I mean, yeah, I mean, culture makes a huge difference. I worked for one entrepreneur, CEO, you know, I just came and started a new division of the company and and uh, sort of from scratch, and we're sort of internal startup, and then the company itself was a startup, a small startup. Yeah. And but you know, the CEO certainly had to be accountable for what you said you were going to set out to do. But I remember him talking to him, 
And it was the first time I'd run into a CEO that said this. He said, he said, I don't believe in having a culture where people feel like there's a sword hanging over the back of their neck every day. Yeah. And so he said, yeah, this is the company of Storehouse of Young. He says, so I'm trying to build a company of the type that I would want to work in. And I know it's probably changed some. It's been a while since I've been at that company. But they went from you know, raw startup to multi-billion dollar enterprise now. Um, and the CEO, you know, until just recently, we just he stepped aside to become chairman. But I imagine the culture is probably still largely the same. And so it's possible to do. And actually, this organization has no sales function. Wow. Think about that. They don't have a CRO or VP of sales. And they sell things and, you know, millions of dollars quantities, you know, large, large system sales, um, as well as some recurring uh, subscriber sale business as well. I mean, it's pretty amazing to think about it, right? So there's a, an example of a culture. Yeah. Where you say, I always look at that because that's what keeps me optimistic because I look at that and say, okay, you can do that. Yeah. You definitely get, there's definitely companies that are out there like it. And I think they're going to be the ones that continue to win. They're the ones that books are going to be written about. They're the ones that you're going to continue to see on the Inc. 5000 list uh, and, and things of those nature. And as the talent war continues to rage, they're going to be the ones that are attracting the best and the brightest candidates, just perpetuating that growth engine. Yeah, it's, it's a good thought, right? I mean, it's, it's, you'd hope that'd be the case because it certainly can be the case. Mm-hmm. And, but it does, it starts yeah, at the absolute top, setting the culture. And you can have a very competitive sales organization uh, without lesser the, the petty, and you got to meet deadlines, you got to hit your numbers, all those things. This, this was a public company, so <laughs> we were hitting numbers. Yeah. Uh, but it just, yeah, if there's pressure, it was self imposed. It was never, uh, life's going to hell in the handbasket if we don't do this. Yeah. And I think at organizations like that, at least from my experience and how you described it, I've worked at a company like that where it felt like it was a real goal and it was something we were all going towards together versus right what we commonly hear as well as I got to just hit this quota or I just got to get this number. And I think even using language like that um, has an element on our culture um, because I've been at companies where, hey, you got to hit quota and it's just like this great grind to get to it, right? Where you do feel like that sword is behind your neck versus, hey, we have this goal and we're all trying to get after it, right? Where everybody from top level management to someone who uh, is, is sweeping up in the back, right? Everybody's attached to and is trying to work towards. And, and that's a culture that I'd rather be a part of. Yeah. I mean, I agree. I just think it's, it's, that's the challenge, right? And for all the you know, recurring issues and challenges we have in sales, is yeah, they don't start at the bottom, they start at the top. Yeah. And you know, like I said, I I'm people accuse me of being cynical about sales training and other things, and it's and it's I'm not. I mean I think it's I think we misinvest the dollars there because for all the money that we spend on on sales training, of which it's I've seen two numbers anywhere from to twenty billion dollars a year in the US, of which yeah almost all of it is spent on training individuals, contributors. I always say, well, what if we just spend 10% of that $20 billion on training the individual contributors, let's spend the $18 billion on retraining C-level and leadership. Yes, about yes. How to manage performance, 
right? Because they're not trained in it. They don't know. They may think they know because, you know, hey, I'm big shot. I'm at the top of this organization. But they don't know. They don't know. They haven't trained how to how to manage performance in a highly competitive environment like, you know, professional sports. Um, hell, professional sports, coaches have to have licenses, you know, at least in soccer. You know, they have to be licensed. I'm a huge soccer fan. They have to be licensed. Uh, they have to take these courses on psychology and all everything that some coaches do as part of their education they get. But most, you know, it's not part of the curriculum probably for most people coming up in a corporate organization. So maybe if we spent that money to train those people, that would change things. I love that idea. I think everything starts and ends with leadership. So I support that. Andy, let's get that. We got to get a better slogan for it, though. Well, yeah, I know. Well, we'll do that. You're Sorry. So you're part of the movement. We'll enroll you. Thank you'll you. Be, you'll be one of the soldiers. Perfect. G- All right. Give me a sign. I'll carry it. <laughs> there we go. Uh, so your book, Raise Your Standards, Raise Your Sales. So when you're talking about raising your standards, what, what do you mean? Yeah. That's a great question. All right. So when I talk about raising your standards, what I really mean is I think salespeople have a lot more to give, right? And for most of the salespeople, most of the individuals I've worked with, and I know this because I was an employee that really um, was just apathetic, right? And I was in a culture that I didn't love selling mm-hmm. a product I didn't really believe in, right? And maybe we all know, and we've all been that. Yes. Right. Yeah. And I, th- I think we all need to, to a certain point, everybody should have that experience at least once in their career. Not mm-hmm. saying you have to stay that you don't have to make a career out of it, out of it. No. but, but go there at least once. So you know what that's like. Yeah. Um, and experience, so experience the bad, you don't know what good is until you experience the bad. I totally, totally agree. And so, yeah. and so when I try to talk to salespeople and when I say, Hey, you need to raise your standards, it's really raising your level of self-discipline and self-accountability. Cause there's plenty of times I knew I, I've done this in my career as well, where it's like, you know, I could have prepared better for that meeting. I didn't because I wanted to check email one more time, or I could have done X, Y, or Z to improve my chances of success. And I, I just didn't do it because honestly, eh, it just didn't want to, right? Either uh, I was just yeah. kind of apathetic to it. And so what I really try to make a point in that book is that, hey, if you if you want the things that you want, right? Or if you want to live the better life, or if you just want to have a level of self-accomplishment, um, right? And the level of self-esteem and self-confidence that I think a lot of us are trying to go after, a lot of us are reaching for. Well, it starts with the doing those daily activities. It's, it's making those promises to yourself and keeping those promises to yourself. So that's just some of the elements that I talk about in the book and kind of one of the thesis for Raise Your Standards. Right. So you start with mindset standards. So you start focusing on discipline in the book. I mean, is that sort of the dominant mindset you think sellers need to improve or raise their standard in or is there others as well? Well, I think there's there's a total of nine mindset standards that I talk about. And so discipline is a big one. Another one that I'm really passionate about is enthusiasm. So I think that there's kind of two superpowers in this world. One is what are you you're shaking your head. Is that not is is Well no, I was gonna ask you a question about that. I was just <laughs> yeah. getting to my notes that yeah, you know, when I was reading the book. So go ahead. No. Uh, so I think there's kind of two superpowers. One is gratitude, right? Uh, you can't be having a bad day if you're grateful. Um, and then the second is enthusiasm. And I don't mean that in a cheerleader, rah, rah, um, let's, uh, you know, that type of enthusiasm. But I mean, just a general enthusiasm for your product, for your company, for your life, right? For, for uh, how you want to provide value to someone in that conversation. I think if you're rooted in that, you're going to have success. But I would love to get your thoughts on it. Well, when I was reading that, I sort of interpret that as optimism. Mm. 
right? I mean, because yeah, you can sort of fake enthusiasm, but I'm not sure you can fake optimism. I just so how do you? Uh, so then I always ask the question: Is well, how do you how do you help people become more optimistic? Yeah, you know, because that's truly a mindset, a part of a mindset, you know, sort of the, the growth mindset, you know, abundance versus fixed on opposite ends of the spectrum. How do you help people with that? I think it again. It, I think enthusiasm is contagious, right? And I think optimism is contagious in that point. And I know for certain that enthusiasm and optimism is not going to grow if there's an environment where no one else is enthusiastic or optimistic. Mm-hmm. And so I really believe that there's this level of osmosis, or there's this osmosis thing that happens when someone's enthusiastic, especially if you're in a leadership position and if you exude that level of optimism that creates that green house environment where enthusiasm and optimism can flourish and you need it right it may sound fluffy um but no, I, mean, man. I think it's a serious thing i think it's it's you're talking about basic outlet that's why i sort of bring up you know the growth mindset versus fixed mindset is because like that fundamentally is and other people have come on the show and talked about that is is yeah i do think this is like a baseline for a lot of a lot of sellers from a mindset perspective is that gratitude certainly part of that, but is yeah. As you look forward, is this you know? Do you see abundance or do you see limitations? And if you see abundance, then yeah, I think you will be enthusiastic. I think you're op- more optimistic, and yeah, it helps if that comes from leadership. If leadership is if you ever work for someone who's kind of dour and reserved and not very enthusiastic, then yeah, you can see how it's a problem. Yeah. And furthermore, right, who would you rather buy something from, like a Johnny Wet Blanket or like a Sally Raincloud, right? Like, I don't like buy, like, yeah, I'll begrudgingly give you my money, but I'd much rather talk to someone that um, actually sounds like they're having a good time at their job or at least enjoying a little bit of life with it, too. Well, I think it's communicated in everything you do. I mean, if, if, and I think that's an issue people sort of, they, this label they put on introverts is that, well, you know, they're so reserved and that's why we talk about sales and we need to be extroverts. And it's like, well, you know, you don't need to be extroverts. I mean, you could be, like most introverts I know, including myself, are actually generally fairly optimistic people. Um, they're just a little quiet about it. <laughs> but, but it's that confidence, I think, that comes through oftentimes with the optimism. I think the optimism gives you a sense of confidence or can easily lead and bleed into a level of, of confidence that gets communicated to the buyer and it's catching like a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it definitely, definitely is. I totally agree with you. Okay. So you've got, we talked about enthusiasm. Now, one thing I wanted to ask you about is you talked about the importance of keeping score. So let's, let's dive into that. Cause I, well, dive into what you talked about first and I'll, I'll ask you a question about it. Yeah, I'd be happy to. So I really think that one of the things that makes sales a really great career is that you actually know whether or not someone is good at sales, right? Like, yeah, I guess kind of, you know, if someone's a good attorney or, you know, if someone's a good accountant because like they, you know, aren't going to jail for a tax fraud or whatever (laughs) it is. Um, But like, how do you know if someone's really good at human Mm -hmm. resources? Eh, I 
I don't, I don't really know. Um, but sales is one of those unique careers where there can be a very clear criteria of who's number one and who's in last place or what company's in number one and who's in last place. And so I think that's what makes sales so in, it can be so enjoyable and it can also be such a motivating factor as well. So I'm a big believer, as we talked about with the interview scorecard, also having some element of keeping score when it comes to your sales organization. And for a lot of companies, this isn't groundbreaking, this isn't news, but for many, right? we're too afraid of either hurting feelings or calling people out. But I really believe that you have to have a very clear um, level of who's winning, who's not winning uh, in your sales organization to keep it hungry, to keep people motivated. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 well, I was going to ask the questions. So do you see many companies that you work with that don't have, you know, they don't keep like a, <laughs> in the sales yeah. room, in the sales floor, a leaderboard? A shocking amount, a shocking amount. But yeah. It's like, don't. Yeah, it's like U5 soccer where they're just like, well, we're not going to keep score and, you know, we're going to just hope that things go well, right? Where they'll send out maybe a monthly report that that says, hey, here's the revenue generated by who. But there's not this approach of, hey, we're going to actually keep score. You're going to know who the number one rep is. And it's not just going to be how you can pick through an Excel sheet and see who brought in the most revenue. But what I'm talking about is an actual, yeah, have a scorecard, have a scoreboard, if you will, yeah. uh, in which you totally. can see where there's no clear, where there's, um, yeah, there's no confusion, right? Anybody could come in off the street and say, wow, Andy is our number one sales rep, absolutely crushing it. And Mark, your last place, you got to figure something out there. Or why are they still here? Yeah. I mean, I just remember my first job ages ago, we, before these things could be automated, is, is yeah, we just had a whiteboard. Love and it. God, it was great to come in and write <laughs> an order under our name and total up our month-to-date number. Uh, on the on the whiteboard. I mean, yeah, we were all competing. That's the thing is, I think sometimes, yeah, I don't know if it's HR gets involved and, you know, obviously worried about we don't create undue stress on, on sellers. But the fact is, management expectations notwithstanding, my experience has been interested in your take on this. Every seller is mentally, if it's not up on the board, they're mentally keeping track of where they are compared to everybody else. And if they're not, I don't know if that's the person that you want at your organization. Yeah, but I mean, it's, it's happening anyway. This internal it is. And that's why I, was, I sort of give a hard time to, on the show, I've interviewed people who have come from companies that you know, are introducing gamification and so on into you know, the sales floor. I'm like, is that really what sellers want is more competition? They're already thinking they're competing against each other. You know, we don't need another game for sellers. I mean, they're already acutely aware of where they stand relative to their own goal and where about their own goals and where about relative to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's all the software, but at the end of the day, to your point, right? A simple whiteboard. That's all you got to do. That's going to get the lesson across to anybody because like U5 soccer, those kids are keeping track of who's winning and who's losing. Same's happening on your sales floor. So why don't you use that, um, that, that methodology, use that momentum behind you uh, to make your sellers more efficient and to put it up where everybody can see it. Yeah, put a bell out on the sales floor so people can ring a bell. Love uh, that. You know, not everybody's together anymore, but uh, yeah, one company I know, they do a virtual ring the bell. So somebody signs an order, email goes out to the entire company, ring the bell. Love uh, it. Yeah, perfect. Why not celebrate the, the wins when you have them? So. Sales is tough enough as it is, right? Why not make it a little bit of fun when you can? Absolutely. All right. 
Well, Mark, unfortunately, we've run out of time, but uh, thank you so much for joining me. So if people want to learn more about you or connect with you, what's the best way to do that? Uh, they can do that at our website, which is www.markpatrickevans.com. And uh, you'll be, that'll take you to all the good links. All the good links. Okay. Well, Mark, well, thank you so much. Andy, thank you for having me. And uh, go Badgers. We're fellow Wisconsinites, so we can say that to each other. Go Badgers. <laughs> all right. Talk to you soon. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, as always, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. We're so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank my guest, Mark Evans, for sharing his insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode and you haven't already subscribed, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or every listener podcast. You can do all that on your phone in less than a minute as soon as this episode is over. So thank you for your help with that. And as always, thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Good selling, everyone.